0: Hey, everybody, it's Felicia, and I'm going to start us off with a high five today. Um, Wes is two and a half-ish now, and she has decided that she is done taking naps, her version of naps. That means in her bed when I choose her naps. But a cute high five is that she's randomly sleeping a lot of places, which... Uh, my kids sometimes did maybe Lenny my second would sleep in kind of like funny places but um, she is hilarious because she'll fall asleep in the weirdest places and you can like move her around and like she doesn't wake up she's sleeping so deep it is cute like the other day we were at a store and she had just fallen asleep while I was carrying her walking and I just laid her in the shopping cart like bottom and she was just Asleep in this like bumpy metal shopping. (laughs) Oh my gosh! It was just hilarious and so cute. And I've never really had a kid. I've seen videos of kids who fall asleep really easily, like in public settings, and I always think it's so cute. And she's my first that actually does that. So it's a high. I have
1: I have (laughs) never had a kid who will do that, and that is adorable. But can we also just have a moment of silence, morning? That official nap time. That's a lot. I mean, like I feel that viscerally for you. I know when that time leaves, it is like, oh man, it's an end of an era. of It's so sad. A large <laughs> chunk of afternoon time. So I'm sorry for you. <laughs> like just hand is- my heart, like I feel, yeah,
0: <laughs> it's less, it is still very sad, but it's also less sad when you have older kids because it's, I feel like with one and two kids, it was like, nap time it's like glorious everyone's silent or sleeping but then once I had sunny like three to four it's like there's somebody around at all times doing something Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah it's sad because two year olds they can't handle themselves
2: yeah (laughs) they need help yeah yeah that's so true that's hilarious though I love that's I know I can't really imagine that because Emmet, like he doesn't ever nap. He was sick a month or two ago, and he did sleep during the day, but that was the first in like over a year. It was- <laughs> anyway, so I like can't even imagine a kid sleeping just like anywhere. I do remember <laughs> one time seeing a picture of Terilyn of Liam asleep, like on the stairs with his back like on the stairs. <laughs> I still have this really great visual of it, and like people were like
1: passing him on the stairs, and he was just like asleep mm-hmm. it looked so uncomfortable but he was so mm-hmm. cute yeah that actually was adorable when Liam did that and Liam also sleeps with his eyes oftentimes partly open so <laughs> wow. it's a great it's I don't know if it's in that picture specifically but I have many great pictures of that too
0: that <laughs> I have crazy. seen I've actually seen Liam fall asleep in a couple of random places
1: yeah that's true I don't know. I guess I've, I've never had one where you can like move them around a lot. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. Maybe it's the youngest child thing. They just do end up sleeping weird places. <laughs> <because> <laughs> they are tired because they try to keep up with all their older siblings. Yeah, so. <laughs> and like the stairs or shopping yeah. carts. <laughs> that could
2: be it. That's hilarious. Um, I love it. Okay, well, mine is a face palm, and mine is so. Yesterday, I. I was putting, so there's, I have one of those blue blocking light bulbs and I had taken it out of where it was before. And I was like, I'm going to put it in Emmett's room because he always wants to turn on the light inside his room at night. And cause he wants to read and stuff. And we do have a night light, but it's, and it's supposedly blue blocking, but um, it's kind of too dim for him to, cause he sometimes likes to look at books, which I'm okay with. And I feel like that's but anyway, but it's hard because he can't really see super well. Cause the nightlight is kind of dim. So he always wants to turn on the top light. And anyway, so long story short, I was changing that light bulb yesterday. Like I finally, and I've had it around forever and I just haven't done it. And finally I was doing something. I'm like, okay, like I'm going to just get this done. Cause I hated it. Just like I would find this light bulb in random places. And I was like, okay, I just need to put it up. So it's done. So then while I did that, I was in the light bulb changing mood and there is this light bulb in my back porch patio that has been out, but it's not an easy light bulb to change. Cause like you actually do have to get a ladder out and change it. And I feel like whenever me or cam thinks about it, it's never like a good time to do it. And then when it probably is a good time to do it, we just don't think about it. Cause there's other things that we're doing. So because I was in a light bulb changing mood, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm just going to get this over with and put the light bulb on the back porch. Cause that's the other thing. I forget that it's out until I need to turn it on. So like, I'll turn it on to look at what's in my backyard. Cause Sometimes I feel like there's a skunk in my backyard. That's a whole nother story <laughs> because sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, I smell a skunk and I'm pretty sure there's like, I think a skunk, we are like on the route of a certain skunk because <laughs> occasionally, I don't know. Anyway, so that's another story, but, but I, but my light bulbs out and I realize it at night and I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to put this in. so long story short, I like, And I don't really use our ladder hardly ever. Cam's taught me how to use it if I need to use it, but I don't use it very much. So for me to use it, it's kind of a hassle because like it's kind of heavy. So I get this ladder out. I bring it all the way to the backyard and it's with me like and it probably wasn't smart because it was kind of wet outside. It wasn't actively raining, but it was it was kind of wet. So probably just wasn't very smart, but I was like, I'm doing it. I'm like in the mood. I'm going to do it. So like get the ladder to work. I do all this stuff. It's not just an easy light bulb. Like you have to take off the globe, which to take off the globe, you have to unscrew the screw. It was, it was more than just your average light bulb changing experience. So I do all this stuff. I finally change it. I put, I finally like I clean off the light light globe put it back on, like screw it on. Then I'm like, oh, man, that was awesome. I'm carrying the ladder back. I put everything away. I go inside, we make some hot chocolate. Then I think to turn on the light bulb to make sure it actually works. I go to flip on the light switch. You guys, it didn't work. So I did all of that work and the light bulb didn't work. And at that point, I was, like, well, now I've- oh, I was no. like, I almost just want to go and do it again because this was like, this was my time. I was going to do it. But then I'm like, that was so much work. I can't. So I think my face palm is because I feel like I've had a couple of things like this for anybody who can relate where I put the time and energy into making a task be done. And then for some reason, either there's something right at the end that I'm like, Ooh, I need, I need something to be able to finish it. And then, so then it doesn't. So it's like I'm almost there, but I can't quite check it off. It was one of those. It was very unsatisfying, and my backlight still doesn't work. So <laughs> it was just such a bummer. I was like, this is the worst. But anyway, so hopefully, I feel like that,
0: like how stuff is like that. Like, yeah. you do it, and it's either not exactly the way you wanted it, or it's not quite all the way Same. done. You still need another piece or part.
2: Yes. Exhausting. Yeah. yeah. Cause then it's like, oh, I still got to run a Home Depot. And you almost just want to do it then. So you could just yes. get it over with. But it's like, <laughs> oh, that's going to be way too much work to do that. Yeah. No, that's totally. I mean, that's how it was. It would have been slightly easier because I just would have, but still, it was like, I have to get the whole ladder back out again. Anyway. Oh. Anyway. Yeah. That was it. So that's my face palm.
1: Oh, oh, Caitlin, sorry. I'm sorry. That story kind of makes me tired because I understand that feeling. <laughs> Very frustrating. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Well, mine's also a facepalm. So, you guys know how Felicia, the day after Christmas, all of a sudden, Christmas decorations have turned inside of her and she's done <laughs> with them. That doesn't happen for me at first. As you guys know, we've already talked about it. And, you know, I mean, my kids, even for the last, you know, the couple weeks after Christmas, I usually keep it up for at least a week and a half after because it's just so much work. And we have several, you know, like I have a birthday party. And anyway, like my daughter likes it for, up for her birthday and blah, blah, blah. So, and I like to do my miracle morning up by the Christmas tree and it's just so lovely. Well, it is now January 18th. And I can officially say, as of three days ago, the thing changed inside of me, the change inside of Felicia. The only difference <laughs> is I still haven't taken mine down, but it's changed inside of me now. And now all of a sudden it's sour. So instead of bringing me joy, literally, again, I mean, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it that it's the 18th and literally just three days ago did it switch. But it's like, I'm done. I need this down. But I also, when am I going to do that? I don't know. Uh, So it's still up. But like, I'm officially now done. So (laughs) face palm is that I am done. And this stuff is still up. So maybe next week when we record, maybe I'll have a high five that I took it down. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. And as I say that, we'll see because I just need to plan it into my schedule am i gonna plan it i guess we'll all find out
0: <laughs> i think that's uh, why I, another thing that makes me like the end push to take them down is that usually parker is home for mm. a few days around christmas i'm like yes i need you here when we do this so i take advantage of the because it's a lot of work
2: christmas is a lot of work yep. yeah a
0: lot of lifting things and boxes and stuff
2: yeah. Uh-huh. It's so true. Um, yeah, I can totally relate to that. I think I also try to get it down earlier because I do, I don't like that sour mode. Cause I'm like, I don't want to feel sour towards this. and <laughs> So I try to do it before. Cause I feel you. It's not, yeah, I get you. I get you. That is a face palm. Well, let us know how it goes next week. We'll follow up if we want. Um, okay. Well, awesome. Well, we're going to dive in today. We're going to talk about, um, Brene Brown, uh, Brene Brown's book *Atlas of the Heart*. <clears throat> We've all read it, and it's if anybody, whether you're a Brene Brown fan or not, which I don't know who's not, but I actually really loved this book so so much. Um, and it's just really cool because the whole premise behind this book is that um, our language shapes our world, and if we don't have the language and our emotions and and experiences and emotions are our world. So if we don't have the language to be able to describe our experiences and emotions accurately, that completely shapes our reality that we live in. And I think what's cool about this, I, one of my, I took a really cool class in college. Um, it was about communication. And one of the things that it talked about was this concept that the language that we use shapes our world. So it gave the examples. There's a couple different examples. And, but one, there was a tribe. It's been a while since I read it, but there's a tribe in Africa who I believe they don't see the color, is it blue or green? It might be blue, but anyway, they don't see it. And part of the reason they don't actually have a word for the color blue in their in their language. So it's interesting because, because they don't have that color, they actually literally aren't able to recognize it because they don't have the language to be able to say it. And another example of this is like in the Eskimo language, they have like over 50 Types of words for s- different types of snow, which is interesting because for us it's like we maybe have wet snow and dry snow. At least that's what I think of. Maybe sleet you might use as like a snow term, but that's pretty much it. But the reason why they have so many terms because literally that's that's part of how they survived is like okay, this is the type of snow that it's good for making igloos. This is the type of snow that's good for melting water to do this. So they had this and they are able to recognize tons of different types of snow because they actually have the language to see it. So I think the cool thing behind this book. So going back to this is that as we become more well-versed in different emotions, experiences, we can shape our world and therefore help like the people in our lives, like our kids and our family and our loved ones be able to shape their world worlds in a better and more like satisfying way and a healthy way. So, um, so again, she she has 87 different kinds of emotions, experiences, and we'll probably use her book a lot throughout other episodes to reference to, but we wanted to do a whole um, episode today about comparison. And she has a great chapter about kind of what we do when we compare. So I love it because she talks about how, I, I think when I've thought about comparison, I've always thought that it's a negative thing and that we shouldn't compare, which I think in some aspects is true, but what I love is in her studies and research, she saw that comparison is actually a natural part of being human. And from kind of an evolutionary standpoint, that's, it's part of how we've survived is we, we do compare. It's just natural for our brains to go there. But what I love is, so it's not necessarily that comparison is bad in itself, It's more what we choose to do after we start recognizing that we're comparing, which I think is a really important distinction. And um, she gives a really great story about how she's a swimmer and she like loves swimming. She feels like it's a really great way to like meditate and work out and just be in your own silence and space, which I definitely feel that when swimming. Um, But she's like, the one thing that will ruin my workout is if I start to see other people in my lane and I will start. I'll start comparing myself to their workout and what they're doing. And it totally like ruins her experience. And she applies it to life that it's like when we, if we start to feel ourselves comparing to other people, to the side of us, and we find ourselves, do I immediately start to compete in some way? Or do I somehow downplay that other person's success? So I think one of the first things is realizing, oh, I'm comparing and I think there's a lot of power in simply saying like, Oh, I'm comparing myself to that person. And you can even simply just say like, okay, I'm going to choose to like, like you keep doing your thing and I'm going to stay in my lane and do my thing. And I think there's a ton of power in that. um, Because I think again, just simply recognizing and having the language to see it um, brings so much power. So I think, anyway, I loved that. I think that was a big shift for me because I've always just simply thought as thought of, okay, comparing is bad and I shouldn't compare, but I think no comparing is actually just a really normal part of life. And it's what we choose to do after we compare.
0: Yeah. I think the, if I think about my normal mind and what it just does, I think it compares a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what you're saying is that that's normal for our minds to do we all do that it's a part of being a human being because we're surrounded by other human beings I heard this thing the other day that was basically saying we think we're so like unique and different but basically we're all so similar and that's what it's reminding me of that we're going to be surrounded by people that in some way ping our comparison jealousy envy thing all the time But left unchecked, that comparison shapes our self-perception and what we choose to do with our life. Because if, if we're not recognizing that we're comparing and why, then we're making decisions based off of our comparison of ourselves to others. But if we can be like, oh, yeah, I'm just recognizing that I am not loving that they're successful in this or... Hmm, maybe that's something that I want, or how can I support them because I love them, even though I'm comparing and wishing I did that or whatever, if we're just taking the time to reflect, we then can shape our vision of ourselves and our future and yada, yada, not based on somebody else, but based on our own evaluation of situations, which is just power really for yourself. Mm So comparison, I think the the thing that I loved about Brene's breakdown, really of all the emotions she breaks down in Atlas of the heart. But of comparison specifically, is she identifies these other emotions connected to comparison, um that I think are really, powerful to recognize in ourselves. Um, But I wanted to first share, she tells the story of that she loves swimming. And when she's swimming in the pool, she often finds herself comparing to the people in the lanes next to her and wanting to beat them and swim faster than them. And But the the thing that I love about this story, and you just need to read the book because it's funny when she talks about her swimming adventures. But my favorite part of the story was that one day she decided, okay, I'm going to take a picture of just my lane. So she has a picture in her office. She got really close to the pool and took a picture of her swimming lane that she swims in every day or whatever. Um, and she hung the picture up in her office as a representation of kind of staying in your own lane. This is her journey and her experience is her lane and she is reminding herself with the picture to stay there in her journey and I just love that visual and it made me want to find something in my life that represents that feeling of just being really clear about what my desires are so that I'm less likely to get stuck in comparing to other people, because if we could all be clear about our journey and all the values and wants that go with that, then I do think if we make those choices, it's easier not to cross compare or get stuck in that with other people. Um, and have you guys heard of the hidden brain podcast?
2: I no. have, I you don't know. Don't, yeah. Yeah.
0: It's a really cool, it's a fascinating podcast and they break down kind of, they just give information and let you do with it what you will. They don't analyze their research. It's just kind of like, here is this facts and then you, you take it for what it is, but we'll link this episode. It, it was called "Decide already by hidden brain, but basically they did research on decision-making decision-making and they found out that. Humans are happier if we make a decision that we can't get out of or choose a different option for. Um, Mm -hmm. So they gave the example of you go to a class and you paint these two oil paintings and you love them both so much. And at the end, the instructor says, "Okay, choose one to keep and take home and then choose the other one. It's going to go in to our like art gallery And one group had the chance to get their; They were able to switch it or they could change their mind or they could have one for a little bit and then switch it for the other one later. And the other group had to choose their painting and they never had an option to get the other one back. And the group that didn't have an option was far less happier with their choice in the long run. When there wasn't an
1: option or a way out and Wait, Wait, can mean, you say that again? The ones who did not have the chance to change their mind were less happier. happy or more happy? No, more happy. Got it. Yes. More happy. Okay. More happy. Yeah. Okay.
0: So I just thought, you know, if we, if we just thought about that on just a run of a mill day, you would think more options or I can change my mind. We would probably think that would make us happier. But- mm-hmm. What they said is that through the research, you can see that this is not the case. And it made me think about how we live right now. Social media, we are bombarded with options (laughs) and a lot of them really shiny and a lot of choices and we can always do better or different or more. And I think it breeds that discontent with our own personal choices.
2: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Totally. Well, hearing that I totally resonate. Like, I think that is so true. I believe the research behind it, but it's like, oh man. And it's true. I feel like to be content is a choice because I think you're right. It could always just keep going. Like you can always be like, well, but I could have a better car or a bigger house or more of this, or, you know, like you could always think that. So I think to decide like it is a choice to be content but yeah that's interesting that's really interesting Mm
1: -hmm. I find that you can it's almost like you can try it on like just thinking about I mean I think it applies to relationships (laughs) you know what I mean like I think there's a settled feeling about knowing like this is you know you can apply it there but even like I was just thinking about my house when I had the feeling in my mind that like this is my house I'm just I'm just in this house no matter what Like this is, this is my house. When I built our house in Kaysville, that's how I felt. Like I literally was like, I'm going to die in this house. And there is kind of a settled feeling that comes with that of when you go to a parade of homes, you know, it wasn't like a, oh man, I want that. I want that. I want that. It was much more of like, I could just appreciate pretty homes. So I'm just going to quickly explain. This is like a, a really good example of this for me. Like it's clicking in my mind. So I built what was like my dream house in Kaysville. 10 years ago and I did everything that like I loved and it was interesting because within like two years of me building my house, I felt like the entire house style shifted from warm colors to cool colors from light cabinets. I mean, sorry, dark cabinets to light cabinets. Like it was a distinct shift. It's like when we go from wide leg jeans to skinny jeans, I had built my house like right before the cusp of the change of style. And there was like a little part of me that was like, Oh man, Dang it, it just changed, you know what I mean? But it was interesting because I had in my mind that like I had just built it and I really was like, I'm gonna die in this house. It was fascinating because for the first time in my married life, up until then, I had always been in a house that I knew that we were gonna like upgrade from. So when I go to say somebody else's house or go to a parade of homes, which is where you get to go and see beautiful homes, I would feel this feeling of like, ooh, I want that. I'm gonna do that in my next house. And it was a different feeling. than after I built my Kaysville house, it really was like I could see other people's houses and I wouldn't even feel it. Is that weird? Like it was like, eh, I already, you know, like I'm already in my house. I'm settled there. I don't, I love it. I'm content. It was a, more of a sense of contentment. Even after styles had changed, I still felt that contentment feeling, mm-hmm. which is fascinating to me. I'm just realizing this right now, how cool that feeling was. And that was, and since then, you know, we had circumstances change. We did end up moving and I love my house. I'm in now, and now I feel that way about my house. Like it's like, I don't want to ever move. But in that like little in-between time when my brain was open to like I'm changing, I'm moving, that feeling came back of like I would see other people's stuff and it was like a uh, – I wouldn't mm-hmm. say envy is the mm-hmm. right expression, but it was more like an unsettled – it's kind of the way I feel about social media. It's like this comparison feeling, a little flutter inside of like, oh, I want that. How can I get that? But then now that I'm I'm back to the place of like I'm here, I'm like content in this house, I'm not wanting to – move and i'm also not really wanting to spend the you know like i'm just settled it is a different feeling but anyway it's just a really i don't know it's an interesting concept like that as you said that felicia that like really resonated with me that's just from a house point of view but it's it shows how it is easy for me to be happy for somebody else's really up-to-date beautiful style if I'm just settled in my own, like I'm not planning on changing anything. You know what I mean? I'm not having to go through the deliberation of like, oh, should I sell my house and buy a new one? Ooh, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm, I've already decided, you know? So I think there actually is power. I'm wondering how we can apply that to different sections of our life. Maybe that's where people talk about, I mean, I'm just talking about all the things that specifically in social media, that makes me feel that fashion is a way it makes me feel that. Is there a way to get that settled feeling I guess that's why people do timeless pieces, that whole concept of minimalist wardrobes where it's like I am doing more timeless concepts so I don't have to always feel that like constant frantic, like, oh, there's a new style, I got to have it. Instead, it's just like this is my timeless style. Maybe that's how you could get that in that situation. You know what I mean? I'm just wondering how can we spread mm. that feeling of settledness, of deciding something and sticking with it? Can yeah. we have that spread to other areas of our lives because I do love that settled content feeling. it's nice.
2: Yeah, well so let me well let me just quickly ask maybe just a follow-up question here because so if I'm understanding this right, Felicia, what you were saying with with that experiment that they mentioned in the research, they were given they were told, okay, like you're gonna make your decision and then you don't have a choice. which I feel like sometimes in life that happens, especially pre-adult, right? It's like when you're a teenager and a kid, Like there is a lot more of that, like, okay, yeah, once you make it like, there's probably a lot more of someone else holding the boundary, but then when we're adults, again, we're the adult. So I feel like we don't necessarily always have outside forces creating this, like, okay, once you make this decision now, you know, like we're going to, you're going to stick with it. So I, I wonder if then it does just come down to us, like in our mind saying like, okay, I'm going to do this. And. I'm sticking with it because we don't always have those outside forces saying like, okay, now you can't go back. So I wonder, again, it like just comes back to us holding our own thing of like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to feel really good about this decision. And then I'm going to, I'm going to like, leave it alone. I'm not going to like keep revisiting. Like, well, should I like, should I do this or should I not? I don't know. Do you think that that's probably, I, I think it's maybe slightly easier said than done. But I think when I hear this, that's a tool that I think we can all do for ourselves is like, okay, yeah, once I decide this, I'd feel really good about it. I'm not going to keep revisiting it because then that's just creating like more angst. I'm just going to let it like, I'm going to move on. I don't yeah. Know.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. So the guy presenting the case said, after I finished my research, like a good scientist, I proposed to my girlfriend, you know, like I had been keeping my relationship in a place where I could, you can yeah. always leave a marriage and I'm not saying choose somebody, marry them and never get divorced because obviously there's tons of reasons to get divorced that would be healthier. But mm-hmm. his sentiment was, I'm, am going to make a choice instead of leaving these things open-ended. And when you're saying like, you're talking about homes and then like, Yeah, not changing constantly like buying new stuff. Or if we think about like bigger, even if we go into like life decisions, I think there's an element of nailing down your values. So maybe with fashion, one of your values is I want to be environmentally aware. So even though I might feel a little ping of comparison when I see other people, wearing new pieces and updating with current fashion, my core value is, you know, to recognize the cost on the environment. And so I'm going to choose to wear more timeless pieces or to buy less because of my core value. So maybe that's like a route we could go down with whatever we're trying to determine in our life is like, what, I guess, what's the kind of person I want to be and how can that determine the decisions I make? So I feel settled in them. So then I'm not comparing constantly. I don't know. That Mm -hmm. could be helpful.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. The thing that's coming to my mind is Janet Lansbury actually in parenting, she says, make a decision. And then she'll say, no, you can change your mind later. But that you're not in limbo. Like it isn't like a, you're in the decision making process for a long time. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. just make the decision and, you know, like do it. And then, yeah, like if, if literally things change later or you go back and think, you know what, that wasn't a great decision, (laughs) then you can, you can to your kids be like, days later, be like, you know what, that (laughs) I'm going to change that. You know what I mean? So it isn't that you're trapped. But the concept is that you're not just constantly in the should I, should I not, should I, should I not concept that like you can make a firm decision with confidence. <clears throat> and then, yes, of course we're in charge here. So we can change our minds later, but not in that limbo state. That like feels good to me Like mm-hmm. make a decision, just feel firm about it, go with it and not stay in that, like just limbo. Mm-hmm. And I like what you're saying about values. That really works for me. I'm feeling a little bit of a prick as I'm sitting here in my closet recording, looking at my clothes, thinking I really need to adopt more of a minimalist, um, more of a settled standpoint. You know what I mean? Because it is so easy to be like, oh my gosh, that's so cute. I'm Mm -hmm. just going to get it. But that is an important thing to me, not to just, I don't want to just be an ultra consumer. You know what I mean? So I'm feeling a little prick there, but I I think that there's an opportunity here. So I'm going to go with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I like that. If you could analyze that could be a fun thing to do in the new year, like in the different parts of our lives, what are our values? So we can feel settled in our decisions. I would love if that could help with my comparison. That sounds fantastic.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love it.
2: If you've enjoyed being with us with Find the Magic, we would so appreciate it and we are so grateful if you could leave us a review. It means a ton to us and it really helps us. So we do read all of the reviews that come through and they mean so, so much to us. One that was just recently posted in the spring is from Jessica Johnston. And when I read this, I was so, so moved. She said, who knew a podcast could be so life-changing? After my first baby, I suffered from crippling postpartum depression and anxiety. I went to a maternal health mental health clinic, and my therapist recommended this podcast to me. I have been listening ever since. Two years later, I still look forward to every episode, and I am now months into my morning practice. This podcast has helped give, give me tools to love my life, feel joy in the present moment, and deepen all my most important relationships. I am so grateful for these women and their perspective and knowledge. I feel like they are my friends, and they truly have inspired me to make life-altering changes that are helping me find the magic in my everyday. Jessica, thank you so, so much for this review. This was so meaningful for us and we all read it and we're just filled with so much gratitude. And I have to say, we feel like you are our friends too. We are so grateful for all of our listeners. And um, again, thank you so much for this review. It means the world to us.
1: Okay. Let's shift gears here. We're going to briefly define resentment. I mean, sorry, we're going to briefly define jealousy and envy. According to Brené Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart, we have an entire episode on this concept. So I'm just going to briefly define them. And then if you're more interested, you can listen to our past episode about it. But when I first read this, it blew my mind because I actually didn't even know that there was a difference between jealousy and envy. I thought they meant the same thing. So I use them interchangeably. But to me, this is a really powerful concept. Envy is where we have somebody else has something that we want. So it could be, we want to look like them. We want to have their house. We want to have their spouse. We want to have their career. We want to have their, whatever it is, their appearance, whatever it is. We want what they have. That is envy. So a way of saying that is envy is generally between two people or a person and a, like a singular concept. Or a, I mean, you could even say a group. But jealousy is that we are afraid that we are going to lose something that we already have. So that oftentimes, an easy way to put that is it can be between three people, right? So I'm afraid I'm going to lose my friend to another friend or my my spouse to another person or to a hobby or to whatever. That's jealousy. So and I guess in a hobby case, it isn't between three people, but it's between that and an entity or an activity, right? So envy, somebody has somebody, somebody has something that we want. Jealousy is we are afraid of losing something that we already have. To me, those two things are really, really helpful to clarify. And what I found when I heard that definition was I say jealous oftentimes when I actually mean envious. So somebody goes on a great vacation and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so jealous. Really, actually, I'm I'm envious. I'm envious that they just went on that great vacation, right? So it's an important distinction because it helps us. It's interesting because, like Caitlin was saying, the language we use gives us the power to feel it. And since I've known the difference inside of myself, I can identify those differences. And it just makes me much more aware of myself and able to process it in a much more effective way, just knowing that difference. So to me, that definition, those definitions are really powerful. And I just think it's really helpful.
2: I want to add something there too. I think something interesting that Brene Brown talks about is that, um, sometimes we can feel envious or jealous and sometimes we might even think like, I want that and I don't want that person to have it. So it's like, I want that. And I, like, I want, I don't want them to have it, but that's not always the case. Sometimes we can just want something and it's like, you know, like with a vacation, it's like, Ooh, I'm so jealous. That's not like, or, you know, I'm so, it would be envious, um, but it would, but it's not necessarily that I don't want you to have the vacation. I just, I want that too. So it can be both, which I think is, it's good to recognize. Cause I think at least for me, sometimes just when I think about jealousy or envy off the top of my head, I more think of it as like the really negative where it's like, Ooh, like I want it. And I don't want you to have it, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. So again, I think it's for me, I think it's actually kind of good to recognize that it's like, cause again, I think sometimes with these, more negatively perceived emotions, it's like, Ooh, I just don't want to feel that at all. But again, it's good to recognize it's like, Ooh, I am feeling this and it's okay to, mm-hmm. it doesn't even necessarily mean that, I mean that person harm. It's just, Ooh, I kind of want that in my life. What does that mean uh-huh. for me
1: Is this point yeah. in a certain direction? So I don't know. Yeah. And it's okay to feel she actually, I love it. What she says. she said, <laughs> she just, she's really funny. And she's like, you know, I want to tell somebody, you know, yeah, I'm envious of that, but I promise not the malicious kind, like, <laughs> like uh, the kind where I actually want to hurt you so you don't have it. But the thing is, what I'm, I guess the point I want to say is, Caitlin, I, I'm glad you brought that up because there are times that we all feel the kind of envy where it's like, oh, I want that. I, actually, it's interesting because for me, when I feel envy, sometimes I find I'm feeling envious, but then when I really analyze it, I actually don't actually want it which again, this, we go into this in our episode, but other times it's like, I want that and I'm happy for that person to have it, but I also just want it. But there are times where I feel that malicious envy where it's like, I don't even want you to have it. I don't want anybody to have it because I can't. I feel like I can't. And so therefore, no one, I don't want nobody to have that. <laughs> and there doesn't need to, we don't need to add shame. I guess the only thing I want to add to here is we don't need to add shame to yeah. that feeling. Then we have to feel bad that we feel a malicious envy. We're yeah. going to say, whew, yeah, we got the spiciest kind of envy right now. The malicious kind. Yikes. It doesn't feel good. I feel it. I'm not going to act on it, obviously, because that's who I want to be. I want to be the kind of person who doesn't act on malicious envy, but then I'm feeling it. So we can still process it, even identifying it when it is the sharpest kind. You know what I mean? We can still identify it, see it, and process it through us. We don't have to add shame on top of it for mm-hmm. feeling that, right? So shame will just make it worse. So I just want to point that out as we're processing emotions, even these really rough kinds, we can just identify it, process it, maybe do some thought work around it. Maybe you say things like, you know, she says to her little swimming people next to her, you know, have a good swim friend. Like I can actually practice saying, okay, hold on, hold on. There is enough in the world. You can have that. And it doesn't take it from me. Anyway, that's a good practice. Yeah.
2: I love that. Something that helps with me with that, because um, I've heard people say like the there's enough pieces in the pie. But for some reason, that imagery doesn't always work for me because I'm like, well, but there is I'm like, there's only <laughs> one pie. And there is, you know, like, for me, I'm like that imagery doesn't totally work. But I did read this and it, it's probably one of those quotes that a lot of people are aware of. But when I read it a while ago, I was like, oh, I love that. And I think it's from the Buddha. And he says some, it's about flame and how it's like flame is one of those things that like you can share it. And it never diminishes the light of its own candle. And I like that in terms of, cause like, oh, that makes sense to me. Like it, so many people can have the flame and it can infinitely go on and it never diminishes. Like it never goes out and never like takes anything away from it. And I like that when I think about it. And for some reason that imagery actually does help me when I think in terms of this, it's like, oh, there actually, there really is enough. Like for me to be able to feel this and to share it. And I think you can apply that imagery to a lot of things, but for me, I actually, It's one of those things that I think actually helps me when I think about like, yes, I can have it and other people can have this too. And we can all, like it doesn't diminish anybody. You know what I mean? So I like that.
0: Yeah, that is a really powerful imagery. Um, The part of envy that really kind of pinged me, the part of envy is resentment. Um, When I was reading this, I... Don't think I realized or connected resentment with envy. Um, resentment for me is often it's kind of like a low grade, like background, like eh, angsty kind of like annoyance feeling. Um and in the book, Brene says that resentment isn't actually. I think off the top of our heads, we would say resentment is a form of like anger or frustration, but it is in the envy family. And I think just making that distinction is so powerful because it's recognizing that we are upset, judgmental, mad, um, angry, whatever, because we want something that somebody else has, or we we have this something that we want, but we're afraid to ask for, um, or we're not setting a boundary about something. And so somebody else is kind of like walking all over us. Those are all things that can lead to resentment, but it's actually being envious of something that somebody else is doing or a boundary that they're setting or a way they're doing um, something. And for me, it's, it often comes out as I'm perceiving like an injustice or unfairness. Mm-hmm. Um so it's like, I'm doing it this way. I'm, you know, completing this in this way. And somebody else isn't caring or meeting or living up to an expectation. But really, when I look at the situation, it's I'm envious that they're able to get to this space that they're in and I'm over here still upholding this expectation. And Mm -hmm. I think just hearing that switch in my mind was so powerful because if I'm putting resentment in a frustrated anger family, I'm still like shooting that outward and thinking that the other person needs to do something or change or be different or I'm judging how they're doing it. Mm -hmm. But if resentment is in the envy family, then I'm realizing that I can't control anything that that person's doing, which is true. I need to set my own boundaries and change my own expectations around the situation. And that just was like, I feel like this is going to settle so much
1: resentment for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I heard her say on a podcast and I can't remember which one it was but she said something like resentment is holding somebody else accountable for my choices. So I'm mad that that person is relaxing while I'm working because I have chosen to do this work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But then I'm resentful of that person for for relaxing. You know what I'm saying? And for me that like statement also I'm with you. It resonate inside of me if I'm feeling resentment that means I'm holding somebody else accountable for what I'm choosing to do because I want because yeah I want to do what they're doing but I'm choosing to do something else and or you know I'm not allowing myself something and I'm holding that person accountable for it like I'm mad at them for doing what I want to do or I'm mad at them for living a life but it's really envy inside of me you know what I'm saying so yeah I think I think that I'm with you it feels like a key like Unlocked. I have this is inside of this is an inside of me thing for sure. Yeah, it's beautiful.
2: Well, and so I think for anybody who's thinking this, because I think resentment is something that is felt by everyone at some point or another. And um, and so I think I love the question that she says, what do I need, but I'm afraid to ask for? So if you're feeling resentment, I think that's a good tool. What do I need, but I'm afraid to ask for? And then then go from there. So I think that's when we do start to feel those feelings. We can be curious about it and then ask ourselves that question and move on from it. Um, okay, and then the last couple of things that we're going to talk about is something called Schadenfreude and Freudenfreude, which these are German words that um, basically she couldn't find an equivalent in English. So we have the same thing, but it's a compound word. So so Schadenfreude means that it's pleasure and or joy derived from someone else's suffering or misfortune. So it's like someone fails and you're like, oh yeah, like. They kind of deserve that or something like that. Um, And so I actually hadn't really heard this term used a lot, but I, I really, I really like both of these terms. And so one of the things about this is that it is born. She talks about how it's born out of in for inferiority rather than superiority. So like, if we start to feel that, I think it always comes from a place of insecurity. So again, I think it tells us something about ourselves more than anybody else, if we are feeling these things. Again, I think the cool thing about any emotion or experience, um, is that it's a message to us. It doesn't mean that you are this person. If you like, it doesn't mean that this is who you are. It's a feeling. And we can be curious about it. Like, Ooh, I'm feeling, <laughs> I may be feeling a little bit happy that this person failed. That's interesting. Why do I feel this? Because it's, it's not healthy for us to feel like if we continue letting it go unchecked, I think that's when it becomes damaging when we just see it as simply an emotion passing through and we're able to process it. Then I think it can be a good message for us. Like, Hmm, that's interesting that I feel that way rather than I think sometimes we might not always recognize it for what it is. And I think that's kind of when we can get tripped up and it can create more harm to us. Like it's not healthy for us. Um, and then Freud and Freud, something that I So this is actually more joy because of someone else's joy kind of is what it translates to. So, um, it's the opposite. So it's like, we're rejoicing in the successes of others. And it's a subset of empathy. And Brene Brown talks about this, that she feels like this is actually something that we far underestimate is the, the ability to feel joy when someone else feels joy. Um, she tells the story about with her kids, they, her and her husband, they give the example of she calls it flame keepers. So she says like good friends are the people. So like, if you're holding a flame out in the palms of your hand, good friends are the type of friends who, if there's a wind that picks up, they come around you and they put their own hands around your own flame to, to keep it from going out. So like, those are the good kind of friends that, and then if your flame is shining bright, they're not the kind of friends who are like kind of trying to like put it out or those kinds of things. You're not a flame putter outer, is how she put it. Um, and you do the same for them. And I love that. Like, I think that's a really cool example to give with our kids and for ourselves that it's like, are we, are we like helping other people's flames shine? And are we excited when they are shining or are we kind of like feeling a little bit of like, Ooh, they're so bright though. Like, I don't know. Is that going to, is it affecting me? Am I not as bright because of it? We can simply, I think seeing it as in that way of like, we help each other. And we both like we both do it. Those are the good
1: kind of friends. I just really loved that example she gives. And I love the idea of cultivating this more because I mean I definitely feel both. I have felt both the enjoyment when somebody else is fails. Like I felt that little bit of smug like, ooh, ooh, yes. Um, or that feeling when somebody's succeeding and I don't feel good about it. And neither of those actually feel good inside of me, right? Like <clears throat> It's like a sour kind of feeling when misfortune happens to somebody else and I feel that little smugness, it feels sour inside of me. So it isn't even enjoyment. It's like a sour feeling. And then obviously if somebody does good and then I feel bad about it, I'm just in the end, I'm just feeling bad. So I'm literally just making myself also feel sour. Mm -hmm. But this concept, so just to be clear, I have done both of those two things. But Freud and Freud, this idea of actually genuinely being excited for somebody else's success. And this is fun because when I think of my kids, oh my gosh, like when they reach one of their goals, I only feel Freud and Freud. Like I am just thrilled for them, right? Mm -hmm. So if I can, and there's been times where, you know, I feel that for my family members and I feel that for my, oftentimes my good friends. So can I extend that feeling? The more I can extend it, Jay Shetty actually said, some, I, and I can't remember exactly how I said it, but he said it's so beautiful. He was like, if we can cultivate that ability to actually be happy for other people's success, think how much more happiness we're bringing into our own lives. Literally, you see somebody else get something that you've been working for, you know, they publish a book and it's successful. Instead of feeling that like, ugh, ugh, if I can genuinely be like, oh my gosh, that is so amazing and only feel happiness, first of all, I'm feeling happier. So that's a win. Second of all, I really do believe then that pulls us towards that success we're wanting anyway, because we're not tearing people down. Like I'm just, I don't know. I'm feeling like as I'm, I don't really love that tear down, like that tear down energy pulls on us. And so it pulls on me, I guess I should say that feeling. So I this concept, although I am not, I would not say that I'm amazing at it. I want that. I want that ability to truly, genuinely be happy for all kinds of successes, even if if it's the kind of success that I really want myself. So envy is going to be an easy sneak in there. Like I would like to be able to cultivate that because I really do think that's what opens us up also more to our own success. That feeling, it's like an abundance. It's an abundance mentality that there is enough. There's enough, let's call it fire instead of pieces of pies. There's enough light, enough fire, enough love enough success in the world? And I don't know about you guys, but what is the practical cultivation of this? For me, the practical cultivation is simply the name I think is powerful. I am feeling Schadenfreude right now, which is not what I'm wanting to feel. Can I transform it into Schadenfreude? Is there a way to cultivate this happiness? So sometimes I try to imagine a practical form of this is I can't imagine this person being somebody that I really do love. Because again, for my kids, it's easy to feel that. But when it's somebody who's like an acquaintance, I probably feel this the most with like acquaintances, right? But I know enough to be envious of them, but not enough to actually like love them deeply. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So can I bring that? So maybe maybe the practical part of this for me is love. Can I cultivate some of that love for that person and actually imagine what it would be like to feel that for them? Like, oh my gosh, they really think how awesome that will feel for them. And trying to like actually use tap into empathy, but not empathy in suffering, but empathy in joy. Like, oh, how would that be for them? Ooh, that would be amazing. That would feel amazing. Ah, that does make me feel more happy. Maybe that's the practical. And I'm just talking out loud. When I think of it inside of myself, that feels practical for me. Cultivate love. Try to tap into that feeling. What would that be like for them? Try to feel it myself and feel that joy for them. What about yeah. I don't know what for you guys? How what would be the practical application? You're feeling shot in You want to move it to Florida. You want to be happy for somebody else's success, but you're not feeling it. What do you do?
2: Well, I think for me, like when I think about this, because I actually distinctly remember if I was in high school and I read a quote. Um, and it was a list of goals that this, it was, I think it was actually, it might've been like Joseph Fielding Smith or something. And it was actually like a list of goals that he tried to live his life by. And there was 10 of them. And one of the things was that stood out to me and it has always stuck with me as he says something like, like, and I will rejoice in the successes of others. And for some reason it like really stuck with me. And I, I liked it because I feel like, especially in teenage years, I think it's easy to like, feel any of these, like, whether it's jealousy, Freud and Freda, any of, or sorry, Sean Freda, any of those things. And for some reason, and again, I think it to come full circle here, going back to the beginning of why it's important to even just know what these emotions experiences are. I think there's power in recognizing that it's, I didn't have the word Freud and Freda, but that's basically what I think when I think of rejoicing in the success of others, like knowing that that's kind of an option that it's like, Ooh, I actually can shift to celebrating this person's success. Not even just like seeing their success I can change to being happy about it and it almost it like changes the whole experience because it's one thing to even witness somebody else's success which that's cool but also like when you are celebrating it with them it's it's like now your own experience that you you like got to be part of this really cool human experience with someone else even if it's someone doesn't so I think um Brene Brown gives so again I think even just being aware of these emotions gives us power so like coming back to that having the language for it I think helps us because it's like ooh. I can actually shift this from not even like witnessing or what if I'm unhappy about it to I actually can maybe decide that I want to have joy for this person. Um, she gives two tools that in a, in a research study done by some other people, they, there was two terms that really helped people with Freud and Freud. Like it, like sh- it developed that more and they called it shoy, which is sharing of joy. So like, sharing joy with someone else. Like when they share their success, you share their joy by asking follow-up questions. So it's like, oh my gosh, you got that promotion at work. Tell me more about it. Like, what are you going to be doing? So that like helps us and it helps them, but it's like, we are joining in this joy with them. And then she also called it, um, another word was braggitude. And um, it's basically tying words of gratitude towards someone else's sharing their success. So saying, thank you so much for sharing this with me. Like I'm so excited about this. I love it. Those kinds of things. Again, I think it helps. It helps our relationships too, because nobody likes to share like a success. If continually they're feeling this, like, you're not really that happy for me that I did this. And she talks about that, that that can be a a big deterrent in relationships if that continues to happen. And so I love this and I can definitely think of experiences with different people where they have they have done these things where it's like, Oh my gosh, thanks so much for sharing. And it makes me feel excited that I shared something good with them. So I like those, those two things to think about too, like shoy and braggadood. that those are also things that can help us with Freud and Florida, like developing that more.
0: I, so it's funny because. I love what both of you guys brainstormed about switching that to the Freud and Florida. God, oh, these words are funny. Um, <laughs> And still, not and still, the only tool that keeps coming up for me, like when you were giving the example of like be the type of friend that protects a flame um, or, you know, lighting other people's flames from your flame, I love it all. And also I felt like my bandwidth for that to be really genuine and pure and mic, my energy is not going to be, I'm not gonna be able to protect a lot of people's flames or light a lot of people's flames. Like, I just think our ability to be like, have those like joyful feelings authentically isn't meant to extend to like the world. And I feel like because our like lives are so connected to, millions of other people and like global with social media. I just keep coming back to that like image of how, if we, that's why it is so damaging. Like I'm not meant to have the capacity to protect however many 10,000 people a day that I see on social media or to regulate my Ford and for all those people either. I think that making our like tightening up our circles and genuinely protecting and lighting and being happy for people's flames that we have the connection and the love for like you're saying with your kids could be a good first step instead of we're like like what's the image of like the we're fire hosing ourselves with people who are doing things that we probably want to do because that's how social media works. It shows you things that you want or like, and then we're trying to be like, come on, Freud and Freud, like be happy for all these people. And I think that's tricky. So maybe at least for me, a good first step could be to lessen those (laughs) exposures so I can build up my you know, tolerance for that feeling, where I can switch from shorten for shorten for <laughs> to for and for because I have more reserve built up in my ability to do it to be a flame keeper for people that I am genuinely feeling connection and love for.
1: Mm, that's good. That's good, Felicia. I agree.
0: It's tricky. This is not an easy emotion to manage. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right, guys, well, we are grateful that you joined us for another chat on jealousy and envy. We will link our our initial episode on this. Um, and we will be back with more Bernie Brown. We promise we're going to break this book down more for you guys. All right, let's find the magic.. <clears throat>
1: me, 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 me. <laughs> Brown cows. <laughs>